Uh, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis 35. Uh, While you do that, may I just say this is the best thing going on today, okay? (laughs) Uh, Being able to gather together on the Lord's Day and worship Christ together through uh, our uh, uh, faithful attention to His Word and uh, rejoice in that. Not that we can't enjoy other things too, but uh, this is the best thing going on. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 35. Uh, a member of my family recently got into a, a conversation with another uh, professing believer in the community about preaching philosophy. I won't say who the member of my family is. Uh, but uh, as they were discussing uh, preaching with someone else, uh, uh, they said, the, the other person said, basically said something like this. Yeah, my, our, our old preacher was just so good. He would, he would you know, read a verse... And he kind of depart from that verse and just give us so many inspirational things uh, to take home, um, you know, that week, you know, each week uh, from, you know, what he would have to say. And, you know, um, at Colonial, it's our desire not to, not for you to be inspired by any preacher. That's not going to take you very far at all. Uh, But when we have God's inspired word to us, we love to go verse by verse, section by section, chapter by chapter. Through God's Word, uh, if you've been noticing as we go through Genesis, uh, as a point of principle, I try to make sure we read the entire text of Scripture somewhere in the sermon, because uh, I, I'm far more confident in God using His Word than using any words that I would give you. Uh, so as we look at Genesis 35 today, I want to uh, read this passage with you. I'm going to read it out loud as we begin, and I want you to see how it flows And I want us to consider the end of Jacob's story together. So Genesis 35, and let me read verse 1 through the end here. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to, to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all their foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. 
And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Ani, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her, her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel still lived in, or while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve: the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Men and women, this is the word of the Lord. We can rejoice in this together. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the privilege of being able to take a moment and look at what your word says about Jacob about the end of his story. As we consider the end of his story, I pray that this would be inspirational to us. May compel us to also be willing to follow your direction and leadership in our lives. I pray that you would give us open ears and hearts to hear and to receive your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. In the final scenes of Jacob's story, we run into a lot of challenging events. Uh, the way I'd summarize these, starting in uh, chapter 32 through 35 here, would be uh, that Jacob faces a brother, he fails a daughter, and he buries a father. Um, and uh, hopefully that helps you recall some of where we've been already in the last few weeks. He faces a brother, Esau. Uh, there was a lot of animosity between him and Esau, and Remember, Jacob was crippled, and, and yet God overcame the animosity, brought healing and restoration in their relationship, and uh, that was a joyous time in Genesis 20, or 32 and 33. But that's followed by Jacob failing a daughter. He failed to go the whole way back to Bethel like he had vowed or promised to God 20 years before. He, uh, his greatest failure involves failing his daughter, Dinah, who was violated, and then received no help whatsoever from her father, Jacob. That leads us to uh, this account. Uh, because of the events we've already experienced, what we find out is that uh, it was not safe for Jacob and his family to remain in Shechem. And so God 
in verse 1, uh, makes it quite clear to him that they're supposed to leave and go back to Bethel. And so in this section, um, we, we see God giving instructions to go back home to Bethel, where he had vowed to return. And then eventually Jacob decides to go back to uh, Hebron, uh, where his father Isaac was. It had been over 20 years, likely, since he had seen Isaac. And so by the end of this chapter, we'll see that. And so after many years, the old roads will take Jacob back home. These final moments of Jacob's story, uh, Moses gives uh, four brief snapshots of important, bittersweet moments in Jacob's journey home. And when we try to capture one's life in a few lines or a few pictures or words, many times we skip over insignificant moments in their life. We, We might skip months or years of normal, ordinary moments and do our best to portray the defining moments of the one that we love. Uh, recently, I think for those of you who were able to attend Halaki's funeral, we all rejoiced in seeing the slideshow uh, that uh, reminded us of key events in Hal's life. And I'm sure to those who knew him best, each picture represented more than a thousand words. In this final chapter, Moses gives brief summary snapshots of Jacob's final journey home. As I said, there are four of them. That's how we're going to track through this. And each snapshot occurs in a different location. And so the first snapshot captures Jacob's journey back to Bethel in verses 1 through 15, where he experiences both sorrow and worship. I want to look at the first five verses here uh, that describe the preparations for the journey and the journey itself. Look again at verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all that were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Now one of the things I point out to you about this text, it really helped me get an idea of finding these four snapshots and see them as kind of standalone pictures that Moses gives here, is all of the language of journeying in the passage. And one of the interesting things to me is that journeying language starts each one of these snapshots. So if you look at verse 5, you see there, and as they journeyed. And then you go to verse 16, it says, then they journeyed. You go to verse 21, the third snapshot, Israel, or Jacob, journeyed. And then you go to verse 27, and Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had journeyed or had sojourned. This kind of journeying language. And so what we're going to find out in these snapshots is, you know, as, as Moses portrays this, he gives us Jacob's final stories here as him journeying from one place to another, four locations on his way back home. And of course, the first location is Bethel, verses 1 through 15. 
And God makes it quite clear at the beginning that he has to go back. He gives him four commands in verse 1. He says, arise, go up, dwell, and make. In verse 1. And Jacob responds by leading his household to obey. Now, did you hear that? You hear those two words that we put together? Jacob leads. I know it's something that we didn't think might happen. Jacob leads his family to obey God by God's grace and goodness. God has worked in his life. So now he's calling his family to obey what God has given to him. More specifically, Jacob calls them to put away their false gods and prepare themselves for the trip by washing themselves and by putting on a new set of clothes. This kind of struck me. New garments. Okay, They didn't have many garments, but, but for this trip... Just get all washed, cleaned up, put on new garments because they're going to go to the place where God had met with Jacob, Bethel. Now, of all the preparations he gives, I think the most shocking one, though, is the first one, isn't it? Put away your gods. Why would Jacob need to say that to his clan? Well, I'll just remind you of a few things in the Genesis stories that we've, we've read already. One. Remember Jacob's wife, Rachel? She stole her father's household god, sat on it, brought it with her. Perhaps this is a challenge to her. Or if you remember the events just in the last chapter, if you look in the last chapter, there, there's the, you know, the uh, avenging by Levi on Simeon where they kill all of the men of the city. And that leaves the women and children And they they bring the women and children in as captives. And they take all of the booty, all of the, the, the wealth of the city. Could be that perhaps these women and children also have brought in foreign gods. But from what we know of the character of Jacob's family, it would not surprise me if any one of them may have had foreign gods. So the people then bring him All their idols and rings. Rings being perhaps spoils from Shechem too. Uh, They bring them to Jacob. And do you see what he does with them in verse 4? Look down in your Bible, verse 4. And notice what he does here. The ESV says that Jacob hid them under a terebinth tree. Now what's interesting to me about that word hid is it's not your normal word for Hebrew word for hid. Instead, uh, uh, this word is normally used when someone desires to hide something really well so it can be never found again. As a matter of fact, when I did a word study in this word, the very next time this word occurs is Moses himself hiding an Egyptian in the sand. Okay, so if you have this picture like I did of reading the ESV here, like, okay, so you're going to hide all these idols and rings under a tree. And, you know, maybe someone's going to come back and get them. That's not the picture here. It's like Moses burying a dead man in the sand so no one will ever find him. Later on, it's used as well in the book of Joshua of Achan's confession that he had hid, he had buried the Babylonian spoils under his tent. As a matter of fact, other translations like the Net Bible or the NIV or New Living Translate Translation, translate this word buried in our passage too. So he take all these things to uh, Jacob and he 
buries them near a terebinth tree. Now, interestingly enough, this is the first of four burials that we're going to see in, this final, in these final snapshots uh, here in, in this part of the text. I want to point out two things to you about this before we move along. Um, one is just uh, something I, ca- I can't but help say, and then the second is an application. Uh, first, Moses' description of, of what these gods endure in Genesis is not very flattering to them or their power. In Genesis, such gods like these small g gods are stolen, sat on, and buried. They're impotent, powerless to what human beings will do to them. But secondly, I think that there is something for each one of us to learn here as well. Jacob understands that giving allegiance to some other object Desire or thing prevents us from giving God what he deserves. Now, as we take this and we think about application for our own lives, we might not make idols of wood and stone anymore, but we make them out of other things. Relationships that become more important to us. Or the hope of a relationship becomes more important to us than our relationship with God. Or possessions, sports cars, homes, dream homes, careers. I think we can learn a lot from Jacob here. These things were dead. They were powerless. They shouldn't give any loyalty to them. They can't bring them sustained happiness. And they might prevent them from a singular focus in life, bringing glory to God. If you have things or dreams that are impeding your ability to pray to please God, might I say this to you? Bury them. Put them to death. As I heard someone say recently, get rid of the grave clothes. Bury it so far away that that there's no earthly way that you would ever dig it up again. I just want to take a moment and exhort you as a pastor here for a moment to a congregation. We can so easily deceive ourselves about such things. And so since that is the case, since our heart is desperately wicked and we deceive ourselves, I would ask you as a pastor, will you do this today? Sometime, you know, before whatever else you got going on today. Will you ask God this question? Lord, do I love something more than you? Would you do that? I mean it. Would you sometime today ask God this question? Lord, do I love something more than you? Do I give more attention to some pursuit in my life more than I do to you? God, would you reveal that to me so that I can put it to death? If you would do that today, I would say you better be careful because God will likely reveal to you your idol. Jacob exhorts his family to get rid of these things, and God continues to use him. It strikes me as very interesting, as reading ahead for next sermons, in the very next chapter, there's a man by the name of Esau. And uh, what we find out about him is he's far different. He's far different. Gordon Wenham says it this way about Esau. He says, when Esau left the land at the end of Genesis chapter 36, 
he walks out of the record of saving history. Jacob says to his family, put away all the, put away all the foreign gods. Put away all the idols. Jacob doesn't make that same decision. And when we close the next chapter, we don't hear of Esau again. And so I ask you, how about you? How about you? Will you live for God or will you live for self? Do you recognize that it takes all of your life to be able to say that you've given to God all of your life? Now, after these preparations, verses 1 through 4, verse 5 narrates their journey and explains how they're able to pass through the Canaanite land safely. Verse 5 says that God put a fear uh, of the people among the cities around them. If you remember, uh, this is interesting because in the last chapter, Jacob ends by being so fearful of the Canaanites and the Perizzites and all the people are going to attack them and kill them. But God takes care of it. As they obey, they get rid of their false gods. They start heading toward Bethel. God puts a fear of Israel and his people among all the Canaanites. That leads us to the point of their arrival. Look at verse 6. <coughs> and Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel. Because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. After 30 years, Jacob's vow is finally fulfilled. Now, a special note here in this text uh, is that uh, when they finally arrive, Jacob calls the name of the place, not just Bethel, but El Bethel, which uh, speaks of the God of Bethel, the God of this place. The, the word El is the Hebrew word for God. So he calls it the God of Bethel. Now, if you remember before, when Jacob was in this place, and uh, he has a vision of a ladder, he's mesmerized by the place. Matter of fact, turn over there for a second. Go to Genesis 28 and verse 16. 28, 16. Keep your finger here. Look with me at verse 16. This is 28, and we're going to look at 16 through 22. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. I keep reading here, but we'll stop reading there. But I would just say, Earlier on, he's in this place, he receives this vision, he says, this is a special place. Now, in Genesis 35, he's less concerned with the place, he's, he's more concerned to exalt the God of that place. And so if you, again, if you're considering uh, what's going on here uh, in this section, in verse, verse 7, there he built an altar called the place El Bethel, because God had revealed himself to him. You see, it's the sweetness of this moment where his whole family is back. He was here alone last time. I might have a hundred people. And he celebrates the God of Bethel. But the sweetness of the moment in arriving at Bethel 
and finally fulfilling his vow, gives way to sadness. Look at verse 8. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel, so he called its name Alon Bakuth. What's interesting here, uh, this is Deborah, and if you are following the story and you stop and look at this, this is Deborah. She is the nurse of Jacob's mother, Rebecca. Sometimes you can get confused, you think it's his wife, but no, it's his mother, Rebecca. Remember about his mother. His, his mother had helped him deceive his father and then told Jacob, you need to flee to go back to Iran so you can be safe. We haven't heard from Rebecca since then. And we don't hear of her again. I think that's likely because Rebecca has died. So that leaves us with a question. Why is his mom's elderly, very elderly, nurse Deborah with him? And the answer, you want the answer? We're not told. We're not told in the Bible. Now, some scholars suggest, and I think that this could very possibly be true, that she might have joined Jacob years before back in her homeland of Iran to inform him that his mother had passed away. That is, uh, Isaac releases her to go back to Iran while Jacob is still back there getting wives and children uh, to let him know that his mother had died. Regardless in the text, Deborah passes away at a very good old age, maybe something like 180 or 190 years old. And Jacob buries her at the base of an oak tree that he names Oak of Weeping. Oak of Weeping. It seems that the death of this matriarchal figure brought much sadness to Jacob's clan. Okay. So you've got this verse about Deborah passing away. This sadness, though, gives way to blessing and worship again. So I said each one of these snapshots are bittersweet. There's blessing and sadness. You have the, the death of Deborah and her burial. But look at the blessing and worship, verses 9 through 15. I'll read it and just make a few comments. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called um, Jacob Uh, But Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him. A pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of that place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. As before, God meets with Jacob here again at Bethel, and he reiterates many of the promises that he had given to him years before at Bethel and earlier at Peniel. So then Jacob sets up a stone as a pillar in the spot and worships God. I'm sure that this moment of joyous worship would be quite special to Jacob. He's finally come back and look at everything God's given to him Since he was last here. God has sustained Jacob. And Jacob by God's grace has fulfilled his vow. So that's the first snapshot. At Bethel. There is sadness. At the loss of Deborah. And there's joy and worship. Of meeting with God again. 
That leads to another bittersweet moment as Jacob journeys from Bethel even deeper into the promised land to uh, a location near Bethlehem. Look at verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel when they were still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear for you, you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It's the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. In the second snapshot that brings Jacob's story to a close, he experiences another loss. Jacob has already lost his mother and his mother's nurse, and here he loses his precious wife, Rachel. You might say his favorite. Now, we don't know why exactly Jacob and uh, Rachel leave Bethel. This was a place he's supposed to go to. He spent some time there. We don't know exactly why, unless it's so that he can begin making his way even closer to where his father lives in Hebron. Regardless, he loses Rachel. Remember his relationship with her. In his youth, he loved her so much. He was so ravaged with her that he was willing to pay 14 years of service as a bride price for her. And now she dies in childbirth. Ironically, do you remember what Rachel said about wanting another son? She said she would die unless God gave her another son. And it's in childbirth that she dies. In her final breath, she names her son Ben-Oni, which means son of my anguish or sorrow. I've heard of bad names before, okay, but I'm sure that wasn't a popular one among the Hebrew women. Son of my anguish and sorrow. Jacob intervenes, though, and he, he calls him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Son of my right hand, which... which indicates that this boy will have a very special place of favor close by at the right side of his father. So the snapshot here of Bethlehem has Jacob experiencing joy mixed with sadness. The joy of gaining another son, but the loss of his precious wife, Rachel. And that bittersweet moment leads to another one near a tower of Eder. Tower called Eder in verses 21 through 26. In verse 21, Israel journeyed on, verse 21, and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. Um, and then he gets into a description of the 12 sons here, describing each one and who their mother is. Now, the first part of verses 21 through 26 portrays yet another devastating development among Jacob's family. The people come to a location that's probably well known to Moses' original readers. It's the Tower of Eder. Eder means sheep, flocks, or herds. So it's likely a place to them that it's well-known, it's well-known tower for shepherds. And while they're living there, in that area, Jacob's oldest son engages in something that must not be done in Israel. He is immoral with his father's wife, Bilhah. 
Reuben. Reuben is immoral with her. Bilhah was also, also the recently deceased Rachel's servant. Remember this, how this works. Leah had a servant, so did Rachel, and so Jacob had four wives. That's most likely to me that Reuben's act is just not an act of uncontrolled desire or lust. But since it follows upon Rachel's death, it seems more likely that this is an act where Reuben attempts to seize the leadership of the family. That is... He's threatening his father, Jacob, because he's not content to wait to gain control of the family. So he takes the wife who is a rival of Leah to be his own. Not as a wife, but immoral with her. That's interesting as we study later on in Pentateuch, we'll find out that Reuben's sin disqualifies him from the firstborn's blessing. Earlier, we've already learned about the second and third son's how they've been disqualified, Levi and Simeon, because of their vengeance. And so what what this does is it kind of sets this family up for conflicts as the sons for the rest of the story will vie for power and authority in the family. It leaves, by the way, the two most likely candidates for the blessing of the firstborn to be Judah and Joseph. And some things are going to happen in the very next chapters that will call even their candidacies into question. Now in this text, though, Jacob returns to his old habits. He doesn't apparently address the situation. The text says he hears about it, but then he strangely does nothing. Which kind of leaves us on edge. Like, okay, you're just going to let that go? What are you going to do about it? We'll find out later. Instead of telling us that, though, Moses gives a full record of Jacob's 12 sons. Already in the book of Genesis, we've seen people with 12 sons. Nahor has 12 descendants, full family, from which a people come. Ishmael has 12 princes. Now at last, Jacob has 12 sons. I think this record is put here near the end of Jacob's story to reveal that God has come through for Jacob. He has fulfilled his promise to Jacob. And now the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel have arrived on the scene. Okay, so this third snapshot is quite interesting, right? This one verse, about the verse and a half about the sin of Reuben, and then the list of the 12 sons. Again, I think it's intermingling sorrow with joy or fulfillment here in this passage. The snapshot of Jacob at this tower has Jacob hearing about the sinful actions of his son Reuben but experiencing the fulfillment of God's promises to him to give birth to a nation. That leads to one final snapshot of Jacob enjoying both sorrow and sadness again, or joy and sadness again, at a town called Hebron. Look at verse 27. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. In this final snapshot, we see that Jacob makes it the whole way back to where his father is in Hebron. 
and he enjoys some final moments with his father. Uh, It seems that these moments are a bit longer than we might think just by reading over these three verses. As if you, you do all the math in Isaac's life and Jacob's life and Rebecca's life, it seems that he is able to be with Isaac for about 12 years back in Hebron before he dies. In honor of Isaac, after his death, both Jacob and Esau come together and we have our fourth burial in the passage. We have the burial of Deborah, the burial of Rachel, the burial of Isaac, and of course the burial of the false gods uh, in this text. This fourth burial in the chapter, I think, reminds us of the pains of life in this world. This whole chapter, and as I'm thinking about these snapshots and them coming together, this whole chapter marks out the end of an era and reveals, I think, what happens to God's people near the end of their lives in a world like ours, a world that is under the curse of sin and death. As we close, I just had a final th- a few final thoughts about application for us in this text and on what we should do with this. Perhaps you're here today and you're closer to the end of your life than you are the beginning. And you've noticed that in the end, uh, the, uh, the, the end involves funerals and burials. Your days involve bittersweet moments as well. As Jacob's story came to an end, All of our stories will come to an end too. And so when we're studying here, I think what we're studying here is how God's faithful community approaches these final events in their life of faith. As God sustained Jacob through the end of this era into the beginning of the era of his son Joseph, he will sustain us as well. I love uh, the martyr Jim Elliot. And what he had to say about life. He said this. He said, it takes the whole of your life to give the whole of your life to God. He said, it takes the whole of your life to give the whole of your life to God. What we see in Jacob near the end is faithfulness and obedience. uh, Even during these times. As we think of Genesis chapter 35, it's my prayer that we too would learn that God is almighty and faithful in all the moments of our life. And that it's our great privilege to uh, come alongside generation after generation of people who have chosen to glorify God in his name with their life. With all of their lives. And with the whole of their lives. And it's my prayer that God would sustain us all until we experience the glory of for which we have been serving. As we think of the four snapshots near the end of Jacob's story, I pray that it will be a blessing to you as you recognize God's faithfulness to him. Let's pray together. (coughs) Lord, I thank you for Genesis 35. (coughs) I thank you, Lord, for these brief glimpses into the end of the Jacob story. Lord, each moment in each location had both joy and sadness. Yet in them, Lord, you reassured Jacob of your character. And so, Father, as I think of my brothers and sisters in Christ here today, those who know you through Christ, 
It's my prayer for those who might feel fatigued, might be burdened down with sorrow. Perhaps they have just endured a funeral themselves, someone they love and care for. I pray that they would see that you are the everlasting God. We faint, we go grow weary. Ultimately, we will take our place among the people of God who live this life and who die for your glory. Unless you return. But Father, I'd pray for brothers and sisters here who might be fatigued and tired, might be overwhelmed by the sadnesses of this life. I pray, Lord, that they would see that it's our joy and privilege to Glorify your name with our life and breath. And Father, may they be able to continue to keep in mind that this glory of God that they serve today will be their experience forever and ever in heaven with you. Lord, would you remind us, as Paul the Apostle said, that all of the afflictions that we bear in this life are light and momentary compared with the eternal weight of glory that awaits us in heaven. Lord, we thank you for how you sustained Jacob until the end, how you chose to use him in spite of all of his sin, in spite of all of his challenges and struggles, according to your grace. And we're thankful that you use us. And we pray that you would use us in strategic ways for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.